Give us select few powerful humans more power, and you will have peace. Every, all the way through, man, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. I mean, we just walk through history, Western civilizations. I mean, you name it all the way through. It's always the same story, always the same story. And what happens? Well, ultimately, I even have this for the screen. Ultimately, what does it do? It produces more suffering, not less. That always happens. I love that you all are here. It is good to be with you all in the house of the Lord this morning. I love it. We are in summertime. That's right. You can clap to be in here with us. That's right. That's right. Eight of you are excited to be with Jesus today. That's good. I love it. No, it's good to be with you. I am excited about today's message, but I do have a disclaimer going into it. Um, a lot of times when I preach, uh, I have a tendency to, uh, it's, it's easy, it's like narrative driven, do a little exegesis, share a little story, make your way through the text, deliver the word, you know, what does it mean back then, what does it mean for us today, illustration, send them out, pretty easy. Uh, and then there are times when you're preaching, um, even before you get to the preaching, where it's just, it's in your heart, you're reading through this, and there's so much good history here. Okay, so the disclaimer is this. Um, I am going to cause you to think. A couple of things are going to happen this morning uh, that, 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 don't, that happen in little ways, but they're going to happen in even bigger ways today. One of them is uh, we can't just do a basic, easy sermon. Um, I'm going to have to not just share even historical context. I got to share historical purpose context. What is the purpose of these people at that time in history? What were they getting right? What were they not getting right? Then we can understand the historical context. Then we can ask the question, what does this mean for us today? Okay, so I'm sorry. I hope you had caffeine. You're going to need it today. The, the second thing that I, I just need to apologize for, again, uh, so if our younger guys going into ministry, this is not a sermon that you should be you know, following primarily, right? Like, keep them more simple than this. The second thing that you gotta, I want you to be aware of, too, is um, there is this linear arc in preaching that you often use. So it's like this idea logically fits this idea, logically fits this idea. And every once in a while, a couple of times a year at most, I take that arc way of doing scripture or of doing preaching and I set it aside and I do what's called mapping. And mapping is like, it's like this idea and this idea and this idea and this idea all point to a central theme. So instead of it being a logical arc, it's different ideas that all help us understand the prime thing clearer, okay? So hang with me. Hopefully that made sense. That's a, that's a really complex opener. Some of you are already done and asleep. That's great. Um, but it should be good. Okay, so with this in mind, Isaiah 40, 31 is awesome. Honestly, I really can't do this text justice unless I was preaching through Isaiah weeks in advance. But the text today is really good. But they who wait, I'm going to read it out of the ESV. We're memorizing it out of the NIV. The ESV says it like this. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We need to pause for a moment before we get into this, and I want to ask this question, rhetorical. Have you ever stopped and wondered, like, okay, if God is really good and God really loves us, and Jesus comes down to this planet, and he shows us the way to heaven, 
when I accept Jesus into my heart, wouldn't a loving God take me out of this brokenness right away? I mean, like, how many people in this room have seen suffering in a significant way? You've watched loved ones fight with cancer. You've held a hand of grandparents or parents or a spouse or a child as they suffered with sickness in deep ways. I mean, I wonder how many people in this room are watching online. I mean, you were right there. You were right there with somebody as they're drawing their last breath. I have done that. I have been with a young adult. I remember a young adult at one point. I was literally right next to him and um, praying for him with him as I watched him draw his last breaths. And I thought, man, God, this just all feels so wrong. Why in the world would God allow us to stay here? I mean, if you accept Jesus, like you give your heart over to the Lord, you come up and you get baptized, it'd be awesome. Like literally, like the Greeks are drowned. Like wouldn't it be awesome if it's like in a spiritual way, like you literally did like leave your body behind and you go straight up into heaven and you could skip out on all this suffering. Wouldn't that be awesome to do? But you tarry. As the old preachers would say, you tarry. He lets you stay. You watch your loved ones pass away and you stay. You give your heart to the Lord and he he has you stay. Why? There is a primary idea, and in all honesty, and I'm I'm gonna reference text that we won't have time to read for the sake of time, but all the way back in Genesis, I mean, early on when God calls out his people, he has this primary thing that he asks them to do, and it's this. He basically says, hey, those of you all, I'm gonna way oversimplify this. Those of you all that have found me and walk with me, now your primary purpose is to bring the kingdom of God and help others see it too. That's why you're still here. The reason you're still here is because God knows your neighbor needs to see him through you. That's why you're still here. You're still here because your kids need to see you follow Jesus. They need to see it with their own eyes. You're still here because your coworkers, your friends, right, other family, you're still here. The reason you're still here is because you are to bring the kingdom and ways of God into this world. And every sphere of influence that you have, you are supposed to make the kingdom of God look beautiful and expand it. That's why you're still here. Literally to be the love and light of Jesus Christ. I mean, from Christ forward to Gulion to share the good news. You are witnesses. And this witness isn't just Jesus forward. It goes all the way back to Genesis. They were supposed to be, the people of God were supposed to be representatives of God to all the lost nations around them. I've been uh, doing a lot of research over the last couple of years and uh, historical theology, it's been interesting going through it. I read a book by Tom Holland named Dominion. Anybody ever read this? Nobody. Awesome. Um, that's okay if you haven't. It's, it's really thick. Uh, Tom Holland is a, he's a, it's, it's always fun when I get to do this. He is a secular humanist 
non-Christian historian. Secular humanist, non-Christian historian. And he unequivocally makes the case that Christianity is the dominant force for the betterment of humanity. As a non-Christian, secular humanist, that more than anything else that's ever happened on this planet, Christianity has shaped all of the charities that, that we know and understand. In fact, he would say, I'm summarizing it, but he would say it basically like this. Tom Holland makes the case that the world knew nothing of the charities that we know today before the church or Christianity. Like literally the ways of Jesus changed everything. Way more than you understand. Okay, so this is, again, this is not Christian it's not written by a Christian. Just a guy that evaluates an historian looking at the story of humanity all the way through. So he would say this, why do we now in our culture care for those who suffer? Why do we care for the lowly in culture. He's like, it's because of Christianity. Prior to Christianity, I mean, even in the Greco-Roman Empire, if you remember from Matthew 5, when it's like, blessed are those who hunger, there's blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are all of these values that Jesus was teaching were not Roman values. What does Rome do with the Down syndrome? All they do is use up resources. And he makes the case that prior to Christianity, like, how did we learn to care for the last, the lost, the least, right? Why did slavery end? He talks about the sciences that we understand. There's actually a, there's a great story in there, and I, I don't have time to get into the details of it, but he basically talks about how a Christian rolls around one day, so the modern sciences that we understand, uh, a Christian basically rolls around one day and he says, I believe that God is intelligent and he ordered the universe so it can be rational because the God that made it was intelligent, it's reasonable, and it's consistent. Therefore, we can continue to grow in knowledge. That basic idea that you don't even learn in school anymore because it's just so part of our framework in the West, but that basic idea was brand new at that point in history, and it assumed a God ordered it, and it's rational, and it's rational, and it's reasonable, and you can logically think it through and continue to learn and grow. That basic idea is Christian. He even talks about how space for like atheism and other belief systems has its root in Christianity. So it's like, hey, we want to hear what you think and we want to talk about what you think and we want you to be able to share where you're at and we want to share where we're at. But that like dialogue as opposed to just brute force beat you up, right? That is fundamentally Christian. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably, especially since you haven't read the book and that's okay. If you're sitting there, you're thinking, oh, but Pastor Mike, when I was in school, when I went to college or when I went to my high school history class, they would always use like the Spanish Inquisition of the Crusades to show how terrible Christianity is. But even a secular, non-Christian, humanist historian talks about how unfair that is, and here's why. He would say this, Saying that the Crusades represented Christianity is like saying a drug dealer who wears a cross necklace and murders people and pushes drugs on individuals is Christian. He may wear the Christian emblems, but he is not following Christ at all. 
And he says that the end of the Spanish Inquisitions and the end of the Crusades were brought to an end because of Christ. So what this means is Jesus himself can even hold accountable the Pope, the papacy, the Catholic Church. Jesus himself, right, like 95 Theses, Martin Luther hammering it on the wall, when the most powerful people in the world say, I am going to define what truth is because of Jesus and his ways and his knowledge saying it's for all people and his ways and knowledge stand above all humans, Martin Luther can hammer 95 Theses on the door and say, I don't care if you're the most powerful person in the world, you have to submit to this. And it changed history. It changed history. Some other things that he talks about in his book, and this is really important to understand what happened in Isaiah. Follow me here, okay? Some other things that are really interesting to point out through this. Government leaders always promise. Now, as I read this, you're going to think I'm talking about today. And I am, but not directly. I'm talking about today through the lens of thousands of years of societies rising and falling. Government leaders always promise peace by convincing their people to accept bigger and more powerful governments. They teach their people, right? What they do is they teach their people to welcome more restrictions, more taxation, and relinquish rights. This is what governments always do through history. If you want peace, what you need to do is give up more of your freedoms, give us more money, relinquish your rights, and let us get bigger and bigger and bigger. Every government all through history has always said the same thing. Give us select few powerful humans more power. And you will have peace every, all the way through, man. Assyria, Babylon, Persia. I mean, we just walk through history, Western civilizations. I mean, you name it all the way through. It's always the same story, always the same story. And what happens? Well, ultimately, I even have this for the screen. Ultimately, what does it do? It produces more suffering, not less. That always happens. That is the human story. That's the human story, the rise and fall of civilizations, where governments say more power, more freedom, give me more of your rights, give me more money, we want more, we want to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we want you to get weaker and weaker and weaker, and we promise it's going to be better in the end, and it never is. And then the story of God rolls around, that he tells the people initially, I don't even want you to have a king. And the people do it anyways. And then you fast forward to Jesus, right? Like Christ rolls on the scene and Christ shows up as a poor outside country loving people. It's all about the heart individual and all people have rights and all people matter. Listen, the way God wins people over is so different than the way powerful people always want to through history. All right, it goes even further. I would say this, interpreting large portion of his writing. A heart filled, it's always been about the heart. God and Jesus has always been about the heart, right? So hear this. A heart that is filled with hope and love has the ability to hold even a weapon safely. But a vengeful, bitter, angry heart 
can't even hold its five fingers in a fist without causing harm. Back it up one more time. I'm going to do this one more time. Listen clearly. Here we go. Back it up. Uh, Go back one more slide. I'm sorry. A heart filled. So if you have a heart and it's full of hope. Again, this idea is not from a Christian historian. It's one of the prominent secular historians writing these ideas. A heart filled with hope and a heart filled with love has the ability to hold even dangerous things very safely. But if you have a vengeful, bitter, angry heart, a vengeful, bitter, angry heart, you can't even hold your five fingers without being dangerous to somebody else. Do you see it? So the idea basically that he lays out is this, to understand this. For a society to be free, fair, and enjoyable, it doesn't need bigger governments and stricter regulations. What it ultimately needs is what God ultimately wanted to do back then, what God is doing through Christ, and even what he wants today. For a country to be free, fair, it needs a new heart. It needs a new heart. And Holland makes the case that that is exactly what Judeo-Christianity works to do. It doesn't work to change all the laws of the land as its primary engine. Jesus didn't come in might, right, to take over the throne or the emperor. He came showing up with the people, grassroots movement, to win the hearts of people. Because ultimate freedom for you actually doesn't begin from external out. Ultimate freedom for you begins with internal heart transformation. This is where your real freedom comes from, is your heart being made new. Okay, I get it. That's a lot, Pastor Mike. That's a lot. That's a lot. With this in mind, I want to make this really clear. God's mechanism of social reformation is teaching individuals in a society what love is. That's ultimately what it is. Real transformation is teaching people what love is. You cannot chain down bitterness, anger, and vengeance, and resentment. You cannot chain it down enough to not be dangerous, even to itself. But love, hope, mercy, the ways of Jesus, man, you can put that in any environment, and it seeds good. Okay, here we go. The other idea is this. The heart of prophecies of Isaiah. So the prophecies of Isaiah are all about God's people. Here's what they do. They refuse to play this evangelistic heart change role in the world. The people in Isaiah's day and age were not doing what they were supposed to do. So so check this out. It's basically like this to make it more modern. God transforms your heart. You taste the love of Jesus in powerful ways. Your heart is set free. You experience hope and mercy and love. But when you go to your workplace, you never, ever, 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 ever display that to them. Your neighbor has no idea. Hear me clearly. Without overtly doing it, you literally rejected the prime reason why God has you stay on this planet. In fact, what 
they were doing in Isaiah's day and age is they weren't just not doing their job. They were looking at the foreign countries and going, oh, I want to do sex like they do sex. This is literally what's happening in the history. Oh, I want, we want to have a king like they have a king. Oh, we want to do money and wealth like they have money. We want to have hordes of it and big bins and big castles. We want to take from the poor and hoard it behind us. So not only were they not being the love and light of God to the world, they were actually beginning to live and look like the world around them. They were letting the world's values come into them. They were letting the darkness into their hearts. All right, so what does this mean? They were supposed to show the world. I mean, they were supposed to show the world that the trust and hope were to be placed in the ways and promises of God. But what functionally happened is they were showing the world that they were putting their trust and hope and love in things of the world too. So every time a young Christian feels in their heart, I won't be whole unless I become famous on social media. I won't become whole unless I'm really wealthy. I won't become whole unless I, whatever it is, whatever value system of the world is around you, the moment you slip into this, you begin to look more like the world or will you say the words of Jesus. This is the sin of God's people. So what happens from this? Isaiah 40, 31. So leading into this text, um, I would say it like this. Out of their fear and lust, they were justifying and making political deals and alliances with the very people, meaning Assyria and Babylon, they were to model the ways of God to. They were called to model the ways of God to these people and they weren't doing it. Okay, enough history, Mike. I told you, I warned you up front, right? So big ideas being laid out. Hopefully some of that landed. So you have God look at his people and he's like, again, I'm myconizing massive amounts of scripture. He looks at these people and he says, not only are you rejecting my mission, why I leave you here. The longer I leave you here, the more you look like the brokenness. And then God basically looks at him and says, fine, I will give you what you say you want. You can have a king. I will let Assyria come in and Babylon come in, but I'm telling you what's going to happen is they're going to devastate you and you are going to find pain and suffering and hurt because of you letting these people into your heart, I am going to let them actually come into your land. And in the middle of this suffering, Isaiah makes these promises about a Messiah that's going to come and change everything. And then he says to these people, right, because we also know what it's like to be a remnant. We often suffer at the hands of other people's decisions. So then in the middle of all of this crazy complication, Isaiah 40, 31 rolls around and he says this, but they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. 
a couple of things from this. In all this geopolitical chaos that's happening back then and honestly is even happening today, in all this geopolitical chaos and sin, Isaiah tells the people to wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait? To wait on the Lord even when you're suffering because of your own bad decisions. To wait on the Lord when you're suffering because of the bad decisions of your nation and leaders. To wait on the Lord when you're suffering because of things that other people did. I mean, how many times have I met with individuals where it's like, they're suffering because their spouse was unfaithful. They didn't even do the sin. They're suffering because their kids are running from the Lord and doing all kinds of painful things. They didn't do it. Their kids are. But what does it mean to wait on God when you're stuck in this place either because of something you did or something because of what other people did? And then Isaiah says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord in the middle of all of this? I'm going to invite Josh up and I'm going to pull some of these ideas together. Okay, so let me make this really clear. We need to be aware of our action and God's action in waiting. We need to be aware of our actions and God's actions in waiting. It's twofold. Words like wait and abide and hope are not void of actionable responsibility in Scripture. Wait does not mean turn off. Hope does not mean do nothing. Hope, wait, abide. These ideas in the scripture, they're not void of action. So what does it mean to wait well as we wait, as we wait in the middle of suffering because of what governmental leaders have done? How do we wait well? How do we wait well when we're in hardship because of things that people, maybe we even love, that have done and it's affected us. Parents have been divorced or you know, a spouse that's unfaithful or fired from a job. What is, how do you wait on God when suffering comes your way, when hardship comes your way? At a national, at a personal level, at a familial level, how do you wait on God? What does it mean to wait well? God's work in waiting. Let me say this. Isaiah talks a lot about Jesus. Now I wanna pause on this. Jesus was a long time out in the future for those people. Okay, hang on. But he's also just around the corner. As Lewis says, C.S. Lewis, we are way too earth-centric. I mean, like, do you realize the person you loved, who loved the Lord, and you were working to help them and encourage them as they pass away. I mean, it's true that we have to wait a long time. We don't know how much time until Jesus comes back again. But it's also true, the moment your loved one closed their eyes, Jesus lifted them up. And we are way too earth-centric in how we view all this, right? So even here, even in Isaiah, Isaiah talks a lot about Jesus. He says their ultimate freedom, ultimate flourishing will come from future king named Emmanuel in chapter 7. He will set them free from the oppression. Not like living. You don't make a good life by making deals with sinful people, but by modeling real love, by being honest about their sin, Jesus will do this and take the effect of all of this on himself, chapter nine. Now, now in all of this, 
What this means is since we're waiting on a true king that will ultimately return and we're present with the true king that's guiding us even today and when we close our eyes on this planet and we run the race and do our best he will lift us up the moment we close our eyes since our king is that involved what this means is you do not have to clamor for more money I mean like the health wealth and prosperity gospel the only thing they get wrong is the timing It is true that glorious health and wealth and wholeness and fullness comes. But today, in the hardship today, in the difficulty today, whether it's national, whether it's personal, whether it's relational, in the hardship of today, you don't have to clamor. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to panic because it's not working yet or because you feel lonely or because you struggle with finances. I mean, yes, we want to be wise. Yes, we want to walk in wisdom. But you don't have to clamor because the God who made the universe when you're done with this mission on this planet for forever is going to give you perfect freedom in perfect fairness, perfect wholeness, perfect intimacy. It's coming your way. God is at work even when you can't see it. I am going to prepare a place, Jesus says. Today, in the middle of waiting, do not forget your eternal story. God's work in waiting. Maybe a really clear way to say it would be this. God is at work even when you can't see it. God is at work even when you can't see it. Say this with me. God is at work even when you can't see it. Say it personally. Change out the you for me. God is at work or even if I can't see it. He is. The other side of waiting, so the waiting well, waiting well. What is Isaiah talking about in the middle of all this complication? Even their own unfaithfulness, hardship that's brought on them. The other side of this, our work in waiting. What's our work in waiting? How do we wait well? Our work in waiting is this. Be faithful with what you do have influence over and trust God in the areas you don't have influence. That statement right there should compass you. Where you do have influence, you be faithful at your work right now, with your neighbors right now, with your kids right now, the people that you actually have relationship with, where you actually have influence, trust God with it. And in those areas where you don't have influence, trust God where you don't have influence, well, in all of it, trust God, but where you do have influence, act faithfully. Act faithfully. Be faithful to what you do have influence over and trust God with the areas you don't have influence. I would say this too, a couple of things really quick to remember. Sometimes God keeps you out of places of influence or fame to protect you. Many times over in the story in the Old Testament, the stories in the Old Testament, even in the New, but especially in the Old Testament, it's like God puts governors on people to protect them. Like, you might be praying, you're like, man, God, I would do great things for you if you would make me wealthy. And so, instead of doing good things with the wealth that you do have, you're not faithful to what you do have, hoping that God will give you what you want, promising that you'll be faithful then. 
but we don't know so much. And God might know that his governor on your wallet is actually saving your soul. Or his governor on your fame might be saving your soul. Or his governor on your power or influence at work. Like you just want to be the boss. You want to have influence. You just so bad. God might be limiting you for your own safety. You have to trust God with what you do not have control over. And be faithful today with what you do have control over. That's a huge part of waiting. The last thing I would say about the waiting is this. We must be hope for each other on hard days. You individually do not have to carry all hope all the time for all people. You participate in a community that carries hope together. I struggle with, uh, it's my personality, I'm a perfectionist, I want to get it right, and I'm very future-oriented, and I always see what needs to be fixed. So like, I can be at a church here for 10 years, and we grow multiple campuses. We've grown like tenfold numerically, right? We've launched campuses and planted and done all kinds of, from my first day here to now, of course, we're all spread out in different spots. We've started feeding programs and sent missionaries and all these great things. I don't see it on most days. I only see what's not done yet. It's just the way I'm made. So I live in an ever state of discouragement. It's just the way I'm shaped. I'm learning to do better. I'm learning to do better. Maybe some of you are that way too. It's like you just, the way you're shaped, you kind of, you always see what needs to be done or what's not right yet. And you kind of naturally live in a state of discouragement because every day you get up and you can't think about what got fixed. You wake up and you just see what needs to be fixed. Anybody else that way? Oh, good. There's a couple of us. Awesome. Me too. I'm that way. So I have a tendency to live in discouragement. So this is what my wife does. I have a hard time even carrying hope for myself. I have a hard time even carrying hope for myself. And my wife, she, I didn't even ask her to do this, but a while ago, it's a number of years ago, she would just start like decision cards, like when people accept Jesus or when people make, I mean, she just would continually, my phone is full of text messages from her showing me the work of God. Do you know how bad I need her to help me in hope? I don't have to be all hope for all people at all times. I can't be. But I can stand here on a stage and I can remind you of your destiny. And you can encourage each other in hope. And while we wait on God to make all things true, right, and good, we are faithful in the little spheres of influence we have today. So here we go, this text, one more time, and I'm going to be done here. But they who wait, wait, let that word wait, faithful with what you do have influence over, 
in suffering that you maybe made or suffering that maybe you didn't make, but it was brought on you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So what do we do in our waiting? We are faithful to God in the little areas that we have influence. On our good days when we have hope, we share that hope. We lift each other up. We encourage each other. Listen, there are some days you come to church because you need it. There are many other days you come to church because somebody else needs you. You. Somebody else needs you to be that word of encouragement and word of hope. Because everybody in this room, this is, in this little tiny early service, this is a sphere of influence that you have. So make Jesus look great before you walk out these doors because somebody needs it. Same thing in your home, same thing with your family, same thing in your workplace, same thing in your neighborhood. Wait well. If you would, grab the Next Steps card. They're in the back of the chair in front of you. Pull them out. Pull the Next Steps cards out. Usually, sometimes I have like big specific questions. All I want you to do today on the Next Steps cards is just, what does the Lord put on your heart? Do you have any prayer requests? Write it down. If there's something that you want, you're like, man, I'm struggling with waiting with this issue, write it down. Our staff will pray with you over it. But just as God leads you, write on that next steps card, what is God speaking to you? Do you need to make a decision? Do you have a prayer request? What are you struggling? What thing are you struggling to wait with? Um, What encouragement do you need to receive? Pray that God will give you. Or what encouragement do you maybe need to give? Just as God leads you, write on the card, I love you. Go. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital Next Steps card at EncounterTrinity.com slash Next Steps.